Let's continue in prayer. Lord, uh, this is your house. We're here at your invitation. And if we know anything at all about you, it's because your word has revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And if we can trust your word, you are here in this house with us today. And you have the capability through your spirit and written word to actually speak to us in the depths of our being. So now we give you consent. We give you permission uh, to speak to us individually and corporately. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our current series is called The Word of the Great King. And it's a study in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's overarching argument really is that Jesus is is the long-awaited king who's come to bring reconciliation to this planet, come to bring the ways of heaven into earth and, and to bring to life in a little community of Jesus' followers the great promises that God made all along the history of Israel. And the invitation is that we can experience that if we put ourselves under the word of the great king. Today what I want to reflect on with you uh, briefly is how do we do that in a world of increasing hostility and violence in a world at war? Well, let's go back to the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Would you uh, pull out a Bible? I'm going to ask you to read aloud with me. So grab a Bible. Um, the, and if you pull out the black book on the pew rack in front of you, turn to page 809. Any other Bible, uh, navigate over to Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. And if you're able, would you stand with me? as we read God's word aloud together. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, arrest him. At once he came up to Jesus and said, greetings rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you're here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. Suddenly, one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen in this way? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not arrest me. But all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. You've heard that before. This is where it comes from. 
Jesus was the one who said it. Jesus says it in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come with swords and clubs to arrest him. But Jesus doesn't say it to the religious authorities. Jesus doesn't say it to the mob. Jesus says it to one of his followers who takes a sword to defend Jesus. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Here's, here's what he says. Put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. This is verse 52. Now, Jesus, if you're going to put it that way, you're going to get people thinking that you're not just talking about the threat of violence here, but the threat of violence anywhere. All who take the sword. I mean, if you're going to put it that way, Jesus, you're going to get people thinking that you're not just talking about barbarism in the first century, but that you're talking about barbarism in all centuries. For me, the shock of our moment right now, as we watch the news unfolding before us, is that the grim power of the sword is wreaking its devastating damage among us, among us today, far afield, distant nations, but also in our own streets today. I think even the most hardened secular person would grant Jesus this one point at least, that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. We, we could agree on that, I think, today. The trouble is, we don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to do what Jesus tells his follower to do, which is put your sword back in its place. Remember this series of reflections began in Matthew chapter eight with a centurion, a centurion. That is a man who carries a sword, remember? Centurion is a foot soldier in the Roman army who rises through the ranks to be appointed a, a, a commander over a hundred foot soldiers. In, it was the, 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 the century was the basic unit of the fearsome Roman army, a uh, centurion. That is a man who knows the fragility and worth of every single human life. You learn that by experience in the battlefield. I mean, it's tragic enough to watch a valiant enemy die in battle, but to see your own comrades in arms, to see even a dear friend perish. No, the centurion knows the value of human life, and he's even got a servant for whom he has great compassion, and he comes to Jesus. Remember Matthew 8, asking for help to preserve this man's life, a centurion. That is a man who finds the authority of his life under the authority uh, of another. I mean, this old warrior is probably not much to look at here at the end of his tenure. But when he puts that uniform on in Galilee, people stand to attention. When he puts that uniform on, he knows those people are standing before the very authority of Rome itself. And this Jesus, this bothersome Jew as probably the soldiers in the barracks might refer to him, this particular Jew, he knows that when you stand before him, you stand before the very authority of heaven itself. A centurion. Lord, he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is amazed 
Jesus exclaims, he commends him. In no one in Israel have I found so much faith. Let it be done to you according to your faith, he says. Well, it's so interesting. Did you know that every time the New Testament mentions a centurion, it does so positively? I don't don't know what to make of that, except this, and that is that there must not be anything intrinsically wrong with the office of soldier. There is, that is to say, a place for a sword. Now, St. Paul himself also reaffirms this lesson In Romans chapter 13, he said, God has given the sword to civil government. By the way, not to the church. Do I need to say that again? Not to the church, but to the civil government, to to the governing authorities for the purpose of justice and peace. God gives this sword. So the issue is not the sword. It can't be the sword. In fact, if you study this carefully, you're gonna realize do you know what? It was Jesus' own idea to bring swords to the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, right, check this out. Luke twenty two thirty six. 36, Jesus says, you're going to need a sword. And so the apostles go, well, we've got two of them here. And Jesus goes, it's enough. So if the problem here or the issue here or the question here isn't the sword, what is it? Well, I want to suggest today that Jesus draws our attention to authority, authority. If you look at the text, go ahead and look again at Matthew 26, 47 through 56. Just scan the page or the screen and look for question marks. See if you can count the question marks because Jesus is asking questions here. And Matthew distinctively notices these questions more than the other gospel writers. This seems to be the emphasis of what he's capturing in this moment. Jesus is asking questions of of us as readers, the people who are there in the immediate context, and all of them are authority questions. They're all questions about who is under whom, authority. For example, uh, about himself, Jesus is asking his audience there, am I not under my father? Don't I have authority to call down 12 legions of angels, by the way, one for each disciple, over 70,000 heavenly soldiers of his followers? Jesus asks another question, are you not under the scriptures? In other words, don't the scriptures have the authority to tell us what's happening here? To the crowds, another question. They come with swords and clubs and Jesus asks, haven't you been sitting under my teaching? Do you now possess the authority to take me prisoner? And by the way, I happen to think there's one more question here and it's for Judas. If you look at verse 50, you see a little phrase there that's difficult. It's brief in the Greek, very hard to translate. And it could mean several things. But I think instead of do what you came here to do, a statement, Jesus actually is raising a question here like we see in the New King James Version. Friend, what, why have you come? What have you come to do? By the way, in the Greek, the word over is hidden in there. The Greek word for not under, but over. And you could translate this, friend, what's come over you? In other words, what authority are you under now? 
which would be consistent with the demonic darkness that's closing in on Judas and all of them as they approach the violence of the cross. Authority questions. So, so why? What do you make of that? Why, why these questions in this moment? Why here now in the shadow of violence? Why as Jesus stands between a follower with a wet sword and a slave with a head wound does he pause to ask these questions? Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Years ago, an academic delivered a lecture in a war zone. His name was Miroslav Volf. He's Croatian, and um, he's currently a professor at Yale University. And the topic of his lecture was, listen to this, a Christian attitude toward violence. So he, in, in a later book, he writes, imagine you are delivering that lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. What would you say? Now, remember, he says, you're in a war zone. Okay, he writes, among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. See, he's saying, be careful what you say, because the people in front of you, they know that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. They know all about intergenerational conflict, the cycles of violence, the structures of violence, that violence begets violence. That in this intractable conflict, there are these unanswerable questions. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who started this thing? Who should be the first to stop? And who gets to say? And what would you say if you were giving that lecture? See, the problem for Wolf is a problem of authority. Now, I'm just old enough to be able to remember the Serbian-Croatian war in the 90s. I, I remember it, and I remember it in the newscast how surprised everybody seemed to sound that there was war in Europe at the time. Oh, haven't we decided we weren't gonna do that anymore in Europe, everybody seemed to suggest? Yes, Asia and Africa and the Middle East, wars, but Europe? Setting aside the implicit racism of that frame, we still see something even more interesting beneath that question, which is the assumption, the assumption that society can get to a place through progressive improvements where we actually have in ourselves the authority to end war, that we could, that we could just decide to stop it with a sword. But here's the surprise. It wasn't working then, and it's not working now. Surprise, we're still locked in conflicts. Surprise, we can't seem to escape the sword, even today. Now this surprise is a legacy of the Enlightenment. This decision that we made in 18th century Europe to, hey, let's just throw off authority. Let's just throw off the authority of the kings, the authority of the religion. We can do this ourselves. We can be our own authority. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It was very promising. German philosopher at the, at the time writes, men work themselves gradually out of barbarity. Immanuel Kant, 1784. 
The idea is that, that we could just kind of grow up, you know, forget about our childish myths and religions and, and, and grow into through enlightenment and education, science and self-interest, our own sense of authority. Grow out of violence. Just put it behind us. Gradually, he writes, 14 years later, violence on the part of the powers will diminish there will arise in the body politic perhaps more charity, less strife, and this will eventually extend to the nations. Does that sound like your social media feed these days? Does that sound like what we're reading about in Congress or in our streets? More charity, less strife? How are the nations doing 150 years later? No. The optimism of the Enlightenment was intoxicating it was as intoxicating as it was naive, and today you and I are living with the hangover. Many commentators today more recently are saying that the belief structure of the Enlightenment actually makes violence worse. And they point to things like the Holocaust of ethno-nationalism, the genocide of communism, or the exploitations of capitalism. As one sociologist puts it recently, these hostilities are not foreign intruders, they are, quote, legitimate residents of the Enlightenment. Indeed, they would not be at home in any other house. That's Zygmunt Bauman, Polish. And yet here, let's come back, and yet here, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus himself offers us an alternative, a new house, as it were, one that allows us to do what he tells his follower to do, put your sword back in its place. So where is that place? Where is that place? Where do we put our swords? Well, wherever it is, let's admit, it hasn't always been a very easy place to find, right? Not just because we're enlightenment people, but also because we're religious people. How many wars have been fought in the name of religion? How often has the name of Jesus been taken upon our lips in order to divide, to marginalize, and to wound people? Yeah, I understand that. But are we willing to let that keep us from embracing Jesus himself and the peace that Jesus claims uniquely to be able to bring to our lives and to this creation? As a Christian, I've had many conversations over the years with people who are struggling to believe and they say, and I think many of us say, you know, I don't really like the Old Testament. There's just so much war in it. I don't believe in war. I don't believe in a God of judgment. But there's a misunderstanding there. Did you know, for example, that the Old Testament never endorses war? It describes it. It doesn't endorse it. It describes it as a tragic reality of the human condition. Yes, war is real, and it's a problem to be solved. In the Bible itself, though, in the Old Testament, there's no hint or threat of violence anywhere to be seen until human beings come out from under God's authority. And once they do, once they come out from under, the threat of violence doesn't come from God, it comes from each other. That's Adam and Eve become a threat to each other in the biblical narrative. Likewise, their first child, Cain, becomes a threat to his brother Abel. And then in Cain's line, generations later, we, a man arises named Lamech who says, 
I will kill a man just for wounding me. And then there's this song that's in the text. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech 77-fold. And there we see, right, the cycles of violence, generation after generation, nation against nation. The story just unfolds in the biblical narrative. And did you know, in the Old Testament, God allows only two types of war. There are wars of judgment and there are wars of defense. Only two that are ever authorized, wars of judgment, wars of defense. Wars of judgment, they're totally unique. There's no parallel in modern life, let alone anywhere else in the Bible, except when God explicitly, directly tells Israel to enact temporal judgment against the Canaanites and Amalekites for prolonged sin. Violence against women, child sacrifice, genocide. In only that one instance, wars of judgment. All the other wars that are allowed in God's purview are wars of defense. These are the only ones that are allowed. When a foreign army comes against Israel and attacks it, a war of defense is allowed. Uh, Invasions of other countries, not allowed. Uh, Insurrections internally, not allowed. And even when there is a war, did you know the Lord makes it very clear that they are to be people of peace, not war. So and you you might remember some of the stories. He sends them into battle with musical instruments instead of battering rams. Remember Jericho, right? How's that going to work? Let's try a little jazz, right? These are people of peace. He winnowed down troops well below the minimum requirement. Remember Gideon. He forbade personal gain in the spoils of war. Remember Saul. He prohibited cutting down fruit trees for weapons when assaulting a stronghold. Remember the ecological legislation in Deuteronomy 20. No, God did not call Israel to hurt her neighbors, but to love them, to bless them. You're blessed to bless the nations. There to be a people of peace such as a violent world had never ever seen before because he invited them by his grace, to live under his authority. Jesus mentions the prophets here in this passage, verse 56. He speaks of the prophets, not just the scriptures, but the prophets in particular. What a rich vision of peace we find in Israel's prophets. It's like no other literature anywhere in the world. Listen to some of its soaring language. He shall judge between the nations. He shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for fire. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. No more shall there be an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at 100 years will be considered a youth. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. Jesus speaks of the prophets. These are the promises that come to mind. Visions not of winning our wars, but of the end of war. So whether today we take up the sword or lay it down, Jesus is hastening us and all human history towards the ultimate day when the sword just won't be needed. Put your sword back in its place. 
Where is that place? Well, it's the cross. The cross. That's where Jesus is going. That's where he's taking us, isn't it? Bring your sword to the cross. First, come to the cross. And did you know, by the way, that at the cross, we are going to find, in Matthew's gospel, a centurion. Isn't this remarkable? There are only two times a centurion is mentioned, and here he is a second time at the cross. Now, it would be a remarkable uh, coincidence if it were the same centurion from up in Galilee whose faith was so striking to Jesus, but it is a centurion nevertheless. It's a man with a sword. It's a man who knows the fragility and value of life. It's a man who seems, despite himself, to, in, surprisingly, come under Jesus in the shadow of his cross because when Jesus is pierced by a sword himself, when Jesus is hanging from the cross, when Jesus is crying out in despair, when Jesus breathes his last, the earth shakes, rocks split, the temple curtain tears, and an old battle-weary warrior says, truly, this man was God's son. There it is. There he is. I just wonder what, what that would have meant to an old warrior. What it means to Matthew and his readers is clear. The son of God has come under the sword himself to release us one day from the power of the sword. For so the prophets had said centuries before Jesus was even born, listen to this. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. And this is reconciliation. This is at the heart of our mission. This is healing for the wounded. This is forgiveness for the sinner. This is God at the cross reconciling sinners to himself and enemies to one another. This is our hope. God put himself under the sword in order to put it in a place, the sword of mercy and healing and justice and peace where it finally belongs. So this is what I'm trying to say to you today. It's the cross in the middle of history that will bring peace at the end of history. It's the cross in the middle of history that will ultimately bring peace at the end of history. Do you believe that? I mean, what would you say if you had a chance to give that lecture in a war zone on a Christian attitude toward violence? You, I'm sure you'd speak about Jesus, right? His teachings right here in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek, love your enemy. I'm sure you'd talk about Jesus, but the question I wanna raise for you today is, which Jesus? Would it be a Jesus with no sword, an enlightenment Jesus who never judges, never carries a cross, never asks you to come under anything or to disconvenience, inconvenience yourself in any way, leaving everything up to you? Or would it be a biblical Jesus? Would it be this Jesus who brings two swords to the Garden of Gethsemane? who knows when and where to put them in their place. A Jesus who's not a passive in the face of violence, but who just exactly the way he tells his followers to do in the Sermon on the Mount, who confronts, who confronts evil with the power and healing and peace of the cross.
In the end, that theologian said this, the certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. He said, this is the only way to be a pacifist if that's what you want to be. The only way we can surrender the sword in the middle of history is to know that there's a great king at the end, that God will one day make every wrong right under the cross of Jesus Christ. So the question really today isn't where the cross is at the moment, or where the sword is, excuse me, it's where are we? Where are you? Finally, I want to just ask you to wrestle with this. I want to ask you to think about yourself in this story. Which one of Jesus' four questions to the people around him most speaks to you where you are today? Where do you find yourself in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you come with Judas, Judas the betrayer? He used to believe. He had a faith, but somewhere along the way it failed him and he began to turn on Jesus. Maybe it was some violence in his past. Maybe it was... Jesus' weird talk of a cross. Somewhere along the way, there was violence growing in his own heart and it grew and it grew until he could no longer distinguish a kiss from a stab in the back. Tragically, the life that he destroys is not Jesus' life, but his own. And yet, catch this, Jesus calls him friend. Jesus calls Judas friend. There's the grace. Are you with Judas? Judas? Or are you with the crowd, carrying swords and clubs, intrigued by Jesus? Truly, we're intrigued. You you would sit with him in the temple courtyard, listening to him teach all day. He's a great teacher. But when he becomes unpopular, when he becomes the least bit dangerous to follow, when the crowds turn a different way, you're with them. You're with them. Are you with the crowds? Or are you there standing with Jesus' follower? You say yes to Jesus, but which Jesus? Which one? Is this the Jesus of the culture, or is this the Jesus who contends with the culture, confronts the culture, and transforms culture? Maybe you're struggling to understand the story you're in. That's good. You're following, you're listening, you're learning. When he says take it, you take it. When he says put it, you put it. Whatever it is, are you his follower? Or, and I think this is where all of us want to get, are you with Jesus? You are in Christ by faith, and you know it. You're under. You found the great authority of your life, and you're claiming it by coming under the authority of one who's greater than you. You've come to the cross, and you come again and again and again to be chastened at the cross in your sin. And you come to the cross to be emboldened at the cross, in his love and unconditional grace, you've experienced reconciliation with God and you're willing to give your life as an agent of reconciliation. And you will let nothing stop you, even if you have to call down the very legions of heaven itself in pursuit of peace. Are you with Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just take a moment to pause. We've read your word, heard it, but now we need to hear it in the depths of our being. Would you you speak to us about our own wounds, about our own fears, about the insecurities 
of our lives and this planet. We give you permission again to put your finger on something that only you can heal and we pray that you would show us where we are in the Garden of Gethsemane and that you draw us to the place where we can say, yes, Jesus, yes, with this, even with this, I trust you. Say the word and I will be healed.